Come on. Welcome to Lifeblood. This is George G. And the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful John Lefebvre. John, are you ready to do this? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's go. From taxi driver to lawyer, from startup founder to millionaire to convict to philanthropist, John Lefebvre has been through it all. I'm excited to have you on. John, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, George, you, you, uh, I, that, that's the introduction I get these days. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess I got famous for getting rich. Um, we, uh, in 2000, we started a business uh, on uh, the, this new thing that was called the Internet. I didn't really know much about it, but my, my <laughs> partner did. And, uh, you know, in around 98 or so, uh, he recognized that um, people were gambling online. And uh, I was completely confounded by that idea, but it turned out they were actually doing that somehow. And um, Steve figured out that if somebody could bring a, um, a, a level of um, security, reliability, professionalism to the online money transfer side of online gambling, that that would make a good little business model. Um, we wound up uh, starting a business in 2000 in, in support of the online gambling industry. And... Uh, it was extremely successful. Uh, in 2003, we went public on the London Stock Exchange and um, attracted a market capital of about $2 billion. I think I owned around um, 27% of that. <laughs> and Nice. And then, uh, at the very beginning of 2007, uh, Uncle Sam came knocking on my door in Malibu Beach. I don't... I had two houses on Malibu Beach, so I'm not sure how he knew which one I was in. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the knock on the door came on Martin Luther King Day in 2007, and um, they said, you have to come to the door right now, and a lot changed that day for me. Um, that they, uh, they threatened three charges, uh, three 20-year beefs. Uh, one of them, uh, there was a conspiracy, money laundering, and the third one was racketeering. And uh, drove me away in cuffs. <laughs> wow! And and um, I was not used to that kind of treatment, or at least hadn't been for a long, long time. And um, we wound up, uh, you know, uh, negotiating plea bargains and the rest, and settled it. Um, about six years later, um, I uh, I had pled guilty pre previously uh, to a lesser charge. And about six years later, we wrapped it all up. Um, um, I forfeited $40 million. My partner forfeited uh, $60 million. And our company forfeited $140 million. So uh, in one fell swoop, uh, we uh, contributed uh, about $240 million to the uh, American Department of Justice. And um, at the time, it occurred to me that, um, George, that uh, the... Uh, war in Iraq was costing uh, a couple of billion dollars a week and that um, the uh, quarter of a billion dollars that, uh, you know, the quarter of a billion dollars that, or sorry, yes, the quarter of a billion dollars that we contributed on hardly got them through Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it got us to about coffee time Monday morning. So it was a, it was a, pretty, it was an astonishing experience. But anyways, I got, I, I got, you know, we, we were, 
super fortunate and I wound up on the winning side of uh, one of those um, almost mythological dot-com stories. So what was there? I, I think that you mentioned a couple things there. What what was it that they said that you did wrong? Well, ultimately, I pled guilty to the offense of uh, promoting illegal gambling, conspiracy to promote illegal gambling. Huh. So... At that, in, in those days, um, uh, gambling was uh, ostensibly illegal uh, in uh, most of the states, 48 of the states, uh, for anybody except governments. Uh, at that time, uh, 48, uh, 48 states operated gambling as well, either operated or licensed it out to, um, you know, a private enterprise. Uh, the two end states, Nevada and, and um, New Jersey, oh, Atlanta, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, so it was a it was a bit of a, a moral conundrum um, for uh, for if you were if you were a government, it was great tax policy, and if you were an individual, it was a pernicious vice. So you know wherever else, wherever else that leads me, uh, George, it led me here. I I never really felt like I uh, breached any uh, fundamental moral. Eth- or ethical codes um you know in my mind uh, what what was good for them was was should be fine for me as well on on, on the moral basis uh but i did break the law and um i was uh, it was you know it, it, i'm i'm a i'm a huge fan of america and i always have been and that didn't change that and um i was uh you know uh man enough to, i suppose to uh you know understand where I, where, where my path had taken me. And, you know, I, I, you know, paid my forfeiture (laughs) did wound up doing 45 days in prison. I was in New York city in Manhattan in the same facility that, uh, they, they held El Chapo in, uh, indeed the same facility that, um, you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, um, woke up to find that he had committed suicide. Right. (laughs) Got him. Yeah. That was that was a wonderful experience, actually. You know, I was a, I was on a wing of 90, 96 men, and um, 80, 82 of them were black guys. This episode is brought to you by Money Alignment Academy. If you are looking for a financial wellness platform for your company, your organization, and your employees, check out moneyalignmentacademy.com or click on the link in the notes of the show. I'm sure that that 45 days in in, in prison is uh, an experience that uh, I hope very few ever experience, but certainly uh, knowing that you were going to get out, that was probably, I'm sure that was a fascinating experience. It was was sure um, not lost on me at all that all I had to do was, you know, suck it up for 45 days. I was, my, uh, my, they call him, we call call him Bunky, (laughs) my Bunky, (laughs) the other guy in my cell. Sam uh, was uh, on his. He was looking at his second, uh, uh, second uh, bit, criminal bit for. Uh, it was, um, it was for uh, this time was uh, the use of a dangerous weapon, possession of a dangerous weapon, and he was 26 years old and he had already done four years and now he's back in for another four years. Mm. And um, I'm still in touch with Sam, but uh, it was an amazing. Um, it was an amazing uh, view of what it's like uh, walk, walking down the street, you know, behind those guys' eyes, what what, it, what things look like to them. 
they sure aren't encouraged to cooperate much. No. All right. So we go through this uh, this awful process with the uh, with the United States government. They say you're going to give us a bunch of money, or you're going to go to jail, I, I, or prison rather. I, I imagine you say, you know what? Let's just let's just make it through this, and then you spent 45 days in prison, and now that's been however many years it's been. Um, you talked about the lessons that you learned from these astonishing experiences. So, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I was, you know, I, I was pretty prepared for um, wealth. You know, I was 50 years old when I was arrested, and um, I was, uh, or actually 54, I guess, but so it didn't really overwhelm me the way it might have some, from some young people, but, um, I was always kind of attuned to, um, the, uh, ideas of social responsibility and generosity and those sorts of things. So, um, I knew that, uh, um, I, you know, it was great to be rich and I really enjoyed, you know, being able to, I mean, one day I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard and I looked in the BMW store and there was a car there I'd never seen before. It was a Z8 Alpina. And I went in and I said, what the heck is that? And they said, well, it's a Z8 Alpina. It's a rare car. There's only 555 of them in the world. And that one's number 416. How much? He said $140,000. I wrote him a check. They took it across the street to the Bank of America, and it cleared. And I drove the car off the lot. Sold. So I was able. To, <laughs> I was able to do stuff like that with. I'm and I'm the guy least likely, basically. You know, I was. I never. You know, I was not. Wasn't that. Was, I, I didn't even know how to balance a checkbook really when I was a kid. But you always have that dream that you stick your hand in your pocket, and there's always going to be some money there. Well, that that happened to me. Um, but I, I did know it came with some responsibility and I started to delve into those ideas, um, you know, quite deeply, I actually fashioned my career around it, but, you know, um, and what it comes down to basically, I think is that, um, you know, freedom comes at a cost and, you know, when we were kids, you know, we were taught that freedom comes at a cost, the ultimate cost. I think they told us that, you know, it comes, you know, and what they meant by that was, you know, you have to give up your life uh, for freedom. And that's, and that's, that was the ultimate cost. I think actually the cost of freedom is much higher than that. Um, the, uh, you know, if it, if it is only us, the risking giving up our lives, about one in a million of us actually do give up our lives. So the other, you know, the, the rest of the, the million get it for free. And that doesn't seem right. What seems right to me is that if you have the benefits of freedom, uh, you have to pay the dues of freedom every day. And those dues are that we have to strive every day of our freedom to ensure that, you know, those who are less fortunate on the freedom department uh, have a chance at it as well. And where I wound up is with this, here's the little aphorism. Those who are content with the, to receive the benefits of freedom, but careless of those who are less fortunate, uh, in that way, have not earned their freedom, but have merely taken liberties. And I think when we, when when we, and freedom for me translates fairly in in particularly in the North American context, freedom tra- translates quite fairly directly with wealth. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and all of the things that we wealthy people take for granted, George, and we do, we take, you know, there's, you know, I, I, the uh, security and respect, um, access to the tools of self-improvement, you know, access to education, access to health care, the uh, tools of health care, basic finance, access to justice. And, and last but certainly not least, 
you know, access to a healthy environment. Um, we take these things for granted, and that that posed a, 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 an interesting problem for me, and that was that, you know, what distinguishes me that it's a that it's a right and entitlement for me, uh, and why 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 isn't it a right and an entitlement entitlement to everybody? And try as I might, I could not come up with a, a, a distinction that was you know intellectually well founded <laughs> you know if i'm entitled to those things everybody is right and um so you know to me it was um uh, it was evident that um i had to strive every day i could to you know to uh, promote those what I, I call them universal rights you know security respect access to the tools of self-improvement etc um we should we we should be providing those to everybody um and uh i think that in a way what that does essentially is it makes generosity not just a choice but actually it's a responsibility so you know i don't feel that special that i was generous i feel like i was fulfilling a duty you know i was you know there's a feeling of duty it takes me to this uh, another interesting idea george and that is that there's been a there's been a pretty amazing change really in in America. Um, in my mind, America was founded upon um, uh, uh, a principle that basically boils down to um, a really positive view of human nature, and that is that if you turn good men free, Adam Smith, you know, quite quaintly, Adam Smith called people men. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but I think, but I think he meant people. But uh, he thought that people were basically good, and if you turn them free to do uh, to do their best, that's the best that you can do for everybody because everybody's going to benefit from that. Good, good people will look after the people who are less fortunate. Um, this idea of the invisible hand uh, showed up, yeah, in in um, you know the Wealth of Nations in seven, seven, 1776, but it showed up earlier, 16 years earlier, in the first book that Adam Smith wrote that he thought was a more important book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in that book, um, he described the invisible hand as being, you know, if if good men are set free to do what they do, um, that because they are good, they will look after those who, who need a hand to get up to, to, you know, to get up and get on their feet and, you know, do it so that they can look after themselves as well. And that, that was what his idea of the invisible hand was. Well, that's changed. It's become more now, um, you know, the best I can do is look after myself and, you know, basically forget about everything else. <laughs> right. And, you know, we've come from a place where we've come from a place where the basic idea of human nature is if you turn people free, they will do the best for everybody to now you know, if you give a guy 400 bucks for COVID, you're going to make himself or you're going to make him reliant. You're going to destroy his self-reliance. So we're not, we're doing, you know, we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're almost obligated to not be generous. Hmm. When we, we look at things now and that George, and here's what I'm coming to with all this is kind of roundabout is a very, very negative view of human nature. It basically says people are bums. And if you give them, if you give them money, they'll just want more and they'll sit down. I don't believe that. I believe if you give people, you know, the basic tools that I'm talking about, 
90% of them are going to go out and really make something of themselves. And, you know, the, that, that, that's, you know, I mean, that increases our GDP. That makes us all more wealthy, right? That makes us all more wealthy. And here's the problem that we face the way we look at things in our society today. Yeah, if you do that, you know, um, some people are going to beat you for it. Some people are actually going to be bums. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's a given. That's a given. That's going to happen. But here's, here's the key to it, George. Just because 10% of the people or whatever it is, or 15% or 20%, I don't know, you pick the number. Just because 20% of the people are, go- are going to beat you for it does not excuse you of your responsibility to help the 80%. Nice. I think that that's all well said right there. And I think that that's really interesting that we've made a shift. It's no longer looking out for others. It's more of a, it's every person for themselves and taking this negative view of if I give you 500 bucks or if I give everybody health care, then they're going to be on the government dole and they're just going to sit around and do nothing. And we're going to zap any kind of motivation that they have to pursue, uh, to, to be the best version of themselves. That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't considered that, but I think, I think that that's certainly, that, 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 that seems accurate to me. So. George, what, what it, it's, what it signals to me is a, a turn towards selfishness that mm-hmm. I find, um, a very, um, bewildering and unwelcome. Um, it, it's echoed in other, in another way that I, if you think that's interesting, let me try this on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what are the fundamental principles of conservatism? You know, and I, and I'm, you know, and I'm not really asking that. That's more or less rhetorical for the moment. I'll let you jump in here in a minute. But, you know, you, you ask nowadays, and you know, a guy like David, you know, David Brooks, the guy from the New York Times. He, you know, he's quite an interesting sure. conservative commentator. And he, and he, he just basically says, well, conservatism, you know, conservatism. It's you know, like, you know, small government, lower taxes, and. You know, everybody goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. But, but to me, small government and lower taxes are dog whistles. They're complete um, kind of smoke. But because what they mean, small small government, small government means no regulation. Lower taxes means what's mine's mine, right? No responsibility to share. And so, but my 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 view of it is is you know we don't need any more corporations that make money dumping mercury into Love Canal. You know, we don't, we don't need, you know, when Charles Koch was busted for, you know, dumping mercury in, in, into Love Canal, you know what he said? He said, and I thought we lived in a free country. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, I don't think, I think small, I, I think we have a responsibility to regulate. Here's the, here's the thing. When we made corporations, when we gave corporations the, uh, the legal the legal status of a person, a legal person. Um, we you know we gave them all the rights of a legal person, but they, none of the responsibilities. The only responsibilities of being that kind of a person and, and a, a, a legal person, not a human person, are the responsibilities that we thrust upon them um, by uh, legislation or regulation. And if we don't, they have an obligation to not follow moral rules. Right, their obligation is to do whatever they have to, whatever whatever works best for the shareholders. And you know, if we tell them, uh, if we don't tell them, you can't dump mercury in, in Love Canal. Guess what they do? Dump mercury in Love Canal. <laughs> yeah, and make money doing it, and that can't be right. 
And we know that's not right now. We've stopped them. The super fund is costing so much money, we put our foot down, right? So, but what, so regulation, yes. And taxes, well, I don't, don't, don't you know, what's mine's mine, right? And, uh-huh. But what's mine's mine. But what that says to me, it's like saying, saying, you know, like, I can't help it if I'm lucky. I got rich and, you know, it's too bad you're not lucky too. And that doesn't sound right to me. So, but so what are the proper principles of conservatism? When I look back at it, I think it's this that conservatism is, uh, the, the fundamental principle of it is to conserve capital, right? To, you know, you take, you take your capital and you conserve it and you develop it. You develop your capital and conserve it. And it seems to me that that's what, you know, is the fundamental principle of conservatism. And now, if, if, you, if you'll grant me that that's at least a, 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 an important principle sure. of conservatism, then the question that comes to me is, well, what is capital? You know, and I think well, capital is money, of course, but it's more than that because it's also property. And property is one of the most important kinds of capital in our system because, you know, you take your property and you make money off it, and that's how you develop more capital is by, you know, property that throws off revenue, right? Yeah, so, and now, <laughs> so, but what's the most fundamental element of property that we have well it's earth mm-hmm. it's our planet it is capital and you know a good conservative does not degrade capital for operating right you don't burn your capital to spend it on hamburgers right <laughs> right and so i think conservation of the planet is a fundamental conservative principle but if that's not uh, astonishing enough for you, let me leave this on you. I don't even know if Earth is our most important cap- capital because, in a way, it's kind of a given. We can degrade it, and it, it would be, and we do, and it's completely irresponsible that we do. But even more important element of capital, because capital is an economic thing, and economics is human, right? But human resources. Our human resources are by far the most important element of capital. You know, we've got 80% of the world is not properly developed in the human resources sense. And if they were, we would be, you know, we would be roughly five times more wealthy all around. Wealth is kind of infinite. You know, when you develop the guys in Malawi, you know, you don't, you know, they don't want uh, Hummers and Fords. What they, what they want is, a, you know, a computer so they can learn how to, you know, print make right right compose cartoons in, in Malawi and and print off the cartoons and then take them down to the market and trade the cartoons for chickens and you know that's what development is you give it's in the spirit of it is if you give good people the tools to develop something for themselves that's what they'll do and they'll go out and make their own way and they'll make themselves independent because if they're independent then they don't have to do what everybody else tells them they can do it themselves it's it's i don't have to preach about the the, the beauties of independence sure and so there you have it i think that um conservatism actually in its fundamentals is goes against small government and no taxes conservatism requires regulation so that people will make money but not from dumping mercury in 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 degrading the capital uh and we have to tax because we have to provide people with education health care access to justice a healthy environment 
<clears throat> security systems, you know, and respect systems to demonstrate respect, all these things that I call universal rights. So there you have it in a nutshell, uh, George, and don't, you know, don't forget you asked. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that's, I think that these are extremely important conversations to be having and it's clear that you've done a lot of thinking as to what the the elements truly are, what what are these universal rights of security, respect and access to the tools of self-improvement and what the what the role of government and we touched a little bit on that, but what it really means to be conservative and you know, these days actually getting down to those to those first principles I think is so extremely valuable. So I think that this is a good place to put a pin in it, John, because we're going to have to pick up our conversation to get a little bit more specific. But but I greatly appreciate you coming on today. Um, where can people learn more about you and how can people engage with you? My website is johnlefave.com. It's difficult to spell, but I think, you know, if people look around on your website, George, they might find the proper spelling for it. For sure. I also... There, there are two books there. Uh, my one, the, the the more recent book is called Good with Money. Um, my my friends were interviewed, and uh, they said he's not very good with money. <laughs> <laughs> and so the title of the book is Good with Money: A Rich Guy's Guide to Gaining Everything by Losing It All. And I think that's that's more or less a kind of a uh, more, more or less a memoir. It's the you know the uh, rags to riches story and the rest of it. I think you know like Adam Smith, my more important work preceded that one, and that's a book called All's Well, Where Thou Orders and Why, which is you know basically sets out these principles that I've been speaking to you today. They both can be seen on JohnLefave.com. I also operate what they call a page on Facebook and it's, a, it's and it's called thoughtful species mm. and thoughtful species has, you know, 15,000 followers or so. And so it's a, it's a, it's a vibrant little community, um, you know, where we look at, you know, uh, current events that are, you know, that demonstrate these principles that I try to speak of. Um, and, um, I, I intend to d- devote the remainder of my career to uh, pitching these things to people, but, but for, for one reason, George, and that is that, you know, we don't need any more discouragement in our society. There's enough of that. There's that, you know, you're tripping over that, but you're not tri- you're not tripping over that much encouragement when you're walking down the street. Amen. And I think, and I think people um, are entitled to encouragement because there's nothing but good ahead in my view. And if that sounds promising to you, I'd, I'd really like to tell you more. Uh, you can read it in my books, and you can look at it in Thoughtful Species. Um, but, you know, my my last word uh, to, you know, to your audience is there's really a lot to be hopeful about. Um, when we develop the world, it doesn't make us poorer, it makes us richer. Uh, everybody thinks that we need growth for our economy to be helpful. Well, eight, 20% of the world is developed and 80% isn't. And that looks to me like five times growth. They don't want Fords. They just want to look after themselves and they want better shoes. So you can make them better shoes and sell them to them. There's a lot of really, really good ahead. It's better to give than receive. And it, not only is it better, it makes you richer. <laughs> I love it. Well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show John your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to johnlefebvre.com. That's J-O-H-N-L-E-F-E-B-V-R-E.com. 
Find his Thoughtful Species Species page on Facebook and check out his two books as well. I'll list all those in the notes of the show. Thanks again, John. Appreciate meeting you, George. It was wonderful being here. Thanks so much. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight. We are all in this together.